Good evening, everybody. This is Jeff J. Brown, China Rising Radio, Sino Land, on the D-Day beaches of Normandy and France. And I'm going nine hours earlier across the Atlantic, across the continent of, of, of North America to California. And I have a very special guest on the air tonight, Teresa Caraggio. How are you doing, Teresa? I'm doing excellent. Happy to be here, Jeff. Oh, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm happy to have you on. I don't, you know, I don't even know how we met. I mean, I meet, some, uh, you know, by email or Substack. I have no Matt, idea. Oh, Matt. Matt, 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 Matt Eric. That's We right. are both such fans of yeah, that's right. Cynthia that's Jung. Right. That's right. And anyway... She, I got her book. I found out that she that she's that she's a writer, and I, and I got this book called How to Dismantle an Empire. And I thought <laughs> that's what the world needs. And that's so, yeah. I, I, she did not give it to me. I paid for it. <laughs> I got it off of Amazon in France, and and you, I've got I've, I've taken tons of notes. It's a really cool book. It's almost like a, it's almost like a tutorial. She asks questions at the end of each chapter. She asks, you know, thought-provoking ideas and themes. Uh, it really ought to be a textbook for 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 some alternative economics class uh, in university or high school. And that's what we're going to talk about this tonight because it is an incredibly fascinating um, uh, book. And so, thanks for being on, Teresa. Thank you. Let me give you a quick uh, bio. Uh, Teresa Caraggio is the author of How to Dismantle an Empire, as you, you just saw, and the creator of Third Paradigm on YouTube. She's very active uh, on Substack. I, I'm subscribed. Rumble and Locals. Topics include small-scale sovereignty, the Great Reset, geopolitics, global economics, propaganda and censorship, A Course in Miracles, Women, Anthropology, Socio-Spirituality, education, power, and money. That is impressive. <laughs> I can't keep she, I can't keep up with all of her work. She's sending out, she's doing stuff all the time. I've got I've got her websites, I've got her book links. Uh, I have her email. She's happy to have you uh, contact her and uh, also her substack, her substack, which you can subscribe to for free, like me. And uh, anyway, here we go. Questions on the back of your book. I'll show everybody on the back of your book. You let people know that you have no credentials, <laughs> which, I, which, which I thought was which, which was a trip. Why do you think it is important for your readers to know that you are a regular citizens? I am so happy that you asked that question because. So as you know from the beginning that one of my introductory quotes is from Johann Galtung, who is the founder of Peace and Conflict Studies. And what he says is that the only reason that he's able to think clearly about economics is because he's not trained in it. Mm-hmm. And that there are a few people, but that the crazy kind of training you have to go through to begin a communist prevents you from being able to see things because you have to unlearn everything first before you can start seeing things for how they are. And so I almost put on there that I was a housewife because what I, because that's what I am. And you did. It does say you're, I thought. Uh (laughs) No, 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 I thought, no, I thought, I thought you said, you said you were a housewife in, in one of in one of your other, maybe in your intro, but I I, I, I remember I remember the housewife thing stuck in my mind. Yes, as if to accentuate yes. the fact and, that you're just a regular Jane. Right, and also that there are only a few ways in which people can have the time to really dedicate themselves, mm-hmm. and and raising kids is one. You know, it it takes time, and you need to be there when they need you but it does leave you other time. And so that being a student, you know, if you don't go through the university system and occupy yourself that way, or being retired, or 
or, or filthy rich. <laughs> Those are kind of the only four ways that you can be able to not have to be part of the rat race and can really take the time to mm -hmm. apply your skills to analysis and understanding how to put all the pieces together. Yeah, well, you've done it. You've, you, you've, uh, you're going to help me explain some stuff that, I, <laughs> that I've been wanting to know because uh, I need you to explain it to me as a regular citizen. Next question. I read Robert A. Williams, Williams Jr.'s excellent book, Savage Anxieties, The Invention of Western Civilization. I'm going to leave the link for you all, which starts out with ancient Greece, much like you do. And it was like you start out with, and I was like, I remember, I remember, you know, Savage Anxieties. His book is more sociological and, and geopolitical. You zero in on the economics of imperial expansion and the resulting slave trade, and then you, and then you bring that 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 economic model up to our up to our modern day situation. And I I have read that the Roman Empire, which adopted the, the ancient Greek model, chewed through two hundred and fifty thousand slaves a year just to keep it functioning. So what I'd like to ask you to do is tell us, uh, tell, tell about why this foundation of imperial expansion and a slave economy is so relevant to the Western world today. Yes. Well, as you know, what my book does is takes 28 different paradigms, those things that are how we think before we think that we're thinking, and it undoes them. And one of those that it starts with is the concept of democracy, that we think democracy was this beautiful thing that made it possible for everyone to be self-governing. But in reality, democracy was brought in because people were revolting against the archons. So when we talk about hierarchy, that that is the inheritance order of the archons. When we look at anarchy, that is rule by rules without rulers. And that's what the people wanted. And they were all getting together. The colonized, the slaves, I'm not sure about the women, but they were certainly not included in the, uh, in the oligarchy. And the small landowners. And what Salon, who created democracy did, was he made hierarchy where you were competitive. If you were a small landowner and you didn't want to fall into slavery, you know, he made it where they were safe, but they could add to the military. And if they added to the military by their sons and training them and equipping them and putting in money, then they could become part of the archons. Mm -hmm. So rather than self-governance, it became representation by the wealthy, by mm -hmm. those who and the and representation through participation in the military. And that's still what we have today. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, everybody has, you know, we, we I, I learned, you know, oh, ancient Greece was, you know, the, the, the bedrock of democracy. But when you really read about it, it was just you know, uh, okay, it lasted about maybe 700 years, but they only had about two or three generations of direct democracy. I mean, I guess that would be, and not all of Greece. I mean, Greece went all the way from Spain to Crimea and Egypt. And I mean, they were all, they were very, very expansionist all the way up into the Caucasus. I mean, they were, they were very, very expansionist. And, uh, but it was basically, basically, this just roller coaster ride of totalitarianism, anarchy, um, uh, dictatorship, uh, a little bit of democracy, going falling back into you know anarchy and totalitarianism. It was just a it it very 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 little. Uh, I mean, Salon you know had the concept, but most of the people most of the time. <laughs> You know, didn't yes. have didn't have democracy, and uh, so. Uh, and would you I like, would, go I ahead. would agree with that, except for adding anarchy in there, because one of my readers, I I've been loving Substack because 
I learn so much from my mm-hmm. readers who are just, I'm so impressed by them. And one I'm so impressed by is a guy, Jack Sirius, who's one of the most well-read people that I've known. And he said that in my book, he wanted to thank me for helping him recognize that democracy was that fig leaf over empire, that its purpose was to defend empire. Mm-hmm. And that it was also the made the anathematization of anarchism, that it's made it where we now associate anarchy with chaos and violence rather than what it really was. So it's left us with no good words to really Mm -hmm. talk about direct democracy or self-governance or what I call small-scale sovereignty. So are you saying that anarchy was the equivalent of direct democracy? Is that absolutely was, no? Okay. That's what I say. Yeah. Okay. That's what okay. I say. Okay. Well, I know they had yeah. se- they had a few generations, well, two or three or four generations of it, which would maybe be about a hundred years out of the total. And um, the problem is, is that it gets if it gets up to a certain size, inevitably, it, you know, it it seeks into representational democracy, and that's the that's the end. Of, that's the end of the people's the people's the people's well, will. That's for sure. Well, I don't know that that's true, because in David Graeber's last book, uh, which was The Dawn of, of Everything, he shows where we have this impression that there is that, um, I forget the Dunbar's number or whatever it is, where after that you can't really do direct democracy. But he shows that throughout, uh, you know, millennia, that has not been true, that that's one of the myths that we've accepted okay. with Western civilization, and that that's part of this idea of making uh, anarchy anathema, because the word anarchy means an without and archons, which are the rulers. So, so the word itself meant we rule, and that has to rely on land redistribution. That's land reform. That's what the Greeks didn't do. So they provided the ideology and then the Roman Empire provided the military. And so that's why it's always important to consider that ideology really matters. Yeah, yeah. Jared Diamond in his book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, he spent time with uh, hill tribes and mountain tribes in uh, uh, Borneo uh, in, in, in the Indonesian islands. And he wrote about how they would, a group of, uh, would get up to about 200. And uh, at that, they all would always hive off and, and create another group, start a new group. Because the, of course, these are, they, these are scavenger, you know, hunter gatherers and, uh, um, uh, a, a a a not a not modern society, but they did they decided over their many millennia of development uh, and survival that above two about above about two hundred people they had to create a new group because inevitably there would be a what was called a big what they called the, the a big man a big man basically you know probably the the the, the psychopath you know the uh, that, that that comes along, or you know, the megalomaniac that comes along, <clears throat> and that if it got over two hundred, then that me- megalomaniac uh, or psychopath uh, <clears throat> could take over the group and 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 destroy it. So uh, right. I guess now, it, it depend. Maybe it may, it may depend also on the culture and 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 their and their development. David Graeber directly refutes Jared Diamond, which okay, and, and shows not only was that not true, but okay. that also women, that how a society was governed and how stable it was and how non-militaristic it was depended or correlated with the women in government. And I also have taken exception to Jared Diamond in some of my writing where okay. I just 
So his concept of guns, guns, germs, and steel is answering the question, why do you, we have all the stuff, you know, something that is asked to him. But, and, and his answer is, well, we did this horizontal migration and that gave us a lot more resources because we weren't having to feed ourselves. And therefore, we developed steel into guns. And, and so that, again, ideology that if people have abundance, mm -hmm. what they're going to do is use it to conquer and be lazy and... Mm -hmm make, you know, and, and, and subdue other people. I think that is a false ideology. And what I talked about when I wrote about him is that the ideology that that conquest was done under was Christianity. The mm -hmm. idea that these are not real people. We are the only real people. We're doing this for their own good. Without that justifying ideology, I believe that people inherently would not have engaged between the ideology and morality and also because they were put into debt. So those are things, the economics and the, uh, and the, and the ideology of religion are the things that Jared Diamond does not talk about. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, uh, if you, if, I don't think you said that in this book, it must be, maybe it's somewhere in one of your other writings. I don't remember that, but um, no, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the um, well, if you want, if, for me, for Christian, you know, the New Testament's okay, but the the Old Testament, which is essentially the the Jewish Torah, uh, that's that's the 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 genocidal, exterminating, <laughs> raping, plundering, uh, rationalization to dehumanize everybody and uh, and uh, go out and uh, you know conquer the world. So, uh, and I think it's I think I think it's all. I'm thinking that. Huh? I'm thinking that if you haven't seen my episode on Jesus is the original gangster psyops and where <laughs> I look at Caesar's Messiah by Joe Atwill and look at how Christianity was actually, again, a myth perpetrated by the empire, that okay. the story of Jesus was actually written by the empire yeah. in order to and with Caesar as who is really God. Okay, that's really interesting. <laughs> well, you mentioned you you mentioned David Graeber, and you're a big fan of him. He sadly he died, I think, what a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and he wrote um, "Debt: The First Five Thousand Years," uh, mm -hmm. and I'll give the link. Unfortunately, I read it as an ebook on my telephone. And with you know the, the little screen, and I, and I, I, I think I would have been better served with it in print because it's it's a it's a it's a really an, an amazing book to refer back and forth. You know, because once you get into an ebook, you just don't you know you just keep you keep going forward. You you don't refer back. It's too too complicated. So please tell us two to three key points of the book and how it relates to your dreams of dismantling global capitalism's empire. Thank you. And and yes, debt debt was the cornerstone for my book. Debt changed mm -hmm. everything that I thought about money because what we've been told that money is is something that simplified barter. It was done for convenience. What David Graeber, who is an anthropologist, shows is that barter isn't something that people ever did to people within their own villages, you know, that that you would be ashamed if you were to like trade mm -hmm. someone, especially if it was someone who needed something, that even if you were doing something for someone, you would always position it as a gift and that you would give back a little bit less, a little bit more to keep that circle going, that he quotes the Inuits who say, up here, we're human. We don't let people starve. And so... What David Graeber talks about is that money and coinage was what created conquest and slavery on steroids. Because, again, going back to democracy, you had all of these mercenary soldiers that were being mm -hmm. produced because of this hierarchy and because there were second and third sons who that was, you know, how they gained there. But the the, all the fiefdoms, the lords, they didn't want to have to take their plunder and then pay them 
and they had to pay them in something that would then be good wherever they were going back to. So what they did was that they took their their medals and they gave the stamp them with a fiat currency, essentially, and then they taxed people in that same coin. Mm -hmm. So what that meant was that in order for people to not fall into slavery themselves, they had to supply the soldiers who were the ones who had these coins in whatever they needed, whether armor, shelter, food, sex, they needed to get these coins because they had to pay their own taxes. So it turned conquest into a self-perpetuating machine mm -hmm. that the treasury wasn't really what they needed. But there's there's a third century before common era uh, text from India that says, you know, that the treasury is based on mining, the army is based on the treasury. He who has army and treasury can conquer the whole wide world. So that's why coinage and money, which once again, you know, we're talking about today, that taxation, we think of this as, oh, of course, we want to help out other people. That's not its purpose. It's because we are kind by nature. People help each other when they are, you know, in need. And so what this did was put us all in a position of having to sell our souls in order to support our families. So that was, you know, that's one of the points that my book is really based on with David mm -hmm. Graeber. Another important one he makes is that debt became the ultimate morality, that because of debt, things like selling your kids into slavery, um, torture, putting someone uh, taking away their, their home, putting them in debtor's prison, all of these things that would be self-evidently immoral suddenly became perfectly fine because of debt. And so that sense of ownership that, um, you know, even though he is very controversial, there are some things that Yuval Noah Harari has said that I agree with. And one is he talks about legal fictions, Money and nations are legal fictions that then allow horribly immoral things to happen. Yeah, uh, I, and it goes way back because uh, I read uh, King Habarabi's um, code from the Mesopotamia from you know two and a half, three thousand years ago, or maybe even even before, and half of it's property and debt, you know, settle, settling debts, you know, um, very, very, very little of it is people, people centered. It's mainly about, it's mainly about property and, and punishment, uh, and retribution and mm -hmm. settling debts. And if you, if, if you do this, then you owe this. And if you do this, you owe that. So that, that goes, it goes, it goes way, way back. So, yeah. Uh, and I think in that, that women are put into the same category as cattle. Yeah, that yeah. It's essentially chattel and cattle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to another uh, person we both like, uh, Ellen Brown. I, I just yes. noticed I haven't had time to look at it, but I guess she was interview interviewed by Cynthia Chung, uh, Matt yes. Eretz, uh partner. And uh, I, and I interviewed Ellen uh, um, a while back. She's the chair of the Public Banking Institute in the U.S. Please share with us what you learned reading her book, Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free. I know she's, she has a second edition. Especially walk us through your explanation of how interest due national debt is created in the West with the government first printing and minting money, then private banks somehow lend it back for colossal profits. <laughs> I, I, I call them the West trillionaire dictators, the several hundred families who own the global capitalist world and, and therefore us. Uh, you present a long rap sheet of their, of their rape and plunder of the... Uh, world's 99%. And uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's my next question. Just tell us, <laughs> sorry, I should have numbered them. 
That's my next question. Tell us about Ellen Brown and yeah. the national debt. Sorry about that. Right. And I love Ellen Brown, who, by the way, wished me well on this interview. Um, and on Cynthia's uh, interview, I posted that I was so happy to see yeah. two of the most brilliant minds connecting. Ellen changed everything I thought I knew. And I first heard her, which would have been maybe 20 years ago, at a, a conference on 9-11 in the deep state. And she uniquely got up and talked about banking and how money's created. And I was, you know, honestly, I, you know, at first I was like, no, this can't, this can't possibly be true. If this were true, everyone would be up in arms about it. But it made me say, yeah, it just changed the whole direction of my life and my course of study because, of course, you and I know that it is true. And I'll read a short quote uh, in my book from, from Ellen, which is, anyone with money has a right to lend it, of course, and any group with money can pool it and lend it, but the ability to create money as credit ex nihilo out of nothing backed by the full faith and credit of the government and the people is properly a public function and the proceeds should properly return to the public. So when we we think and you you know you even mentioned that the government first prints and mints money that actually the printing part isn't even legal isn't even legal since the Federal Reserve, which is a which is a cartel of bankers, mm -hmm. took over. It has private as bankers, Ellen, private bankers, yeah. private bankers. That, yeah. as Ellen says, they are no more federal than FedEx. Mm -hmm. So there is, and the federal government can't even can't even audit them. You know, which was something that uh, Ron Paul and others tried to do. So they are a cartel of private bankers, and what they have usurped is the, the ability to create money out of nothing. So when, you know, so for 96% of money today in the U.S. of dollars is, is digital currency. It never is printed. And so that money is created through mortgages. So what bankers do when uh, you have a house, let's say you're going to borrow 100 million. I'm sorry, not 100 million. Uh, you're going to borrow half a million, okay. 500,000. And that they don't take that out of their pockets. Mm -hmm. They don't take it out of other people's accounts like it's a wonderful life. What they do is they do double uh, double ledger accounting, they create it as a debt over here and a credit over here, and then they issue it. Now, the problem among many, you know, the first problem is that that means they own our houses for free mm -hmm. and that we work for 30 years or 60 years with dual incomes in order to buy them from them. So our labor, if you have a roof over your head, and it has a mortgage or rent, your labor is working for the bankers, no matter who else you, you know, you believe you're working for. And so the other problem is that they are only creating the principal and not the interest. And so if with a 5.3% uh, interest rate over 30 years, that doubles what you, you borrow. Value. You, so you, borrow that, you borrow uh, half a million but you pay back a million. Exactly, yes. Mm. But that other 500,000 doesn't exist because they've pushed half that, you know, only the principal out into the economy where then you work to get it back, but you, the other part doesn't exist. So they have to keep raising the amount of money that is in circulation. And they do that by manipulating the prime rate. And every time they raise the prime rate, it means that for the same amount of repayment, say $1,000 a month, for that same amount, you end up doubling, tripling, mm -hmm. quadrupling the how much money you can borrow. 
So when people say, oh, a low interest rate is a good thing, it's not because it just makes it where you can borrow more and know the house you can't like come into more money or pay it off early because the value of what you've borrowed is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, they, um, it, it, it goes all the way back to the Rothschilds and, and, uh, and how they, how they got the, the, the bank of England, which was basically a bunch of private bankers, just like the, just like the uh, federal reserve fomenting wars and wars and and uh, imperial expansion getting the government to borrow money from them paying interest on it and uh it's it's a heck of a deal <laughs> exactly yes yes it's, it's, a, it's a heck of a deal and that's why i say that banking is governance whoever creates the money which is the primary privilege and exclusive privilege of government they really are the government. So we have a bunch of puppets who are face cards, but Mm -hmm. they're not the players. The actual government are Mm -hmm. the bankers. Yeah. That's luckily for at least um, communist and socialist countries like China, uh, North Korea, Cuba, their central banks, you know, print their own money and, (laughs) <laughs> so at, le- at least they cut at least they cut out the private banks and can and can manage their and, and can manage their money internally. And I guess the last the last major uh, Western country that had had um, um, that was Canada. I think in 1975 they finally uh, got either probably bribed uh, bribed or extorted to abandon their public their public bank and uh start and started borrowing money from the rothschilds and the shifts and their and the rockefellers and the carnegies just like everybody else so it was just just too bad right and right after that quote from ellen i have one from william lyon mckenzie king the 1935 prime minister of Canada, who says, until the control of the issue of currency and credit is restored to government and recognized as its most conspicuous and sacred responsibility, all talk of the sovereignty of parliament and of democracy is idle and futile. Was that in 1935? 1935 is when he's saying that. So something was going on, you know. Okay. I thought thought they finally gave up printing their own money in 75, but maybe I got the, the wrong, maybe it's 35. I, can't I mean, remember. there, and you were talking earlier about the axis of evil. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, what I talk about is that all of those countries that, you know, that the U.S. targets, there is one sin that they have committed, which is owning their own currency. Oh, yeah, and yeah. so, yeah. yeah, so, so much of this really comes down to what I call the petrol apocalypse is that mm-hmm. the petrodollar gives the U.S. the ability to make money and everyone else makes things that money can buy. Yeah. And we just, you know, so we have had this ability, which I think is disappearing fast. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure, especially this last year. Mm-hmm. All right. I call them the West's trillionaire dictators, the several hundred families who own the global capitalist world, and therefore us. You present a long, it's <laughs> some great stories. You present a long rap sheet of their rape and plunder of the world's 99%. Tell us about two shining examples, because I have friends from Detroit, uh-huh. Detroit, Michigan, USA, and what I call, that's the first one, and and then what I call the rape of the middle and poor classes, the, the home mortgage meltdown in 2008, and the latter one is very personal for my family. We went bankrupt as a result, starting our lives over again. When we moved back to China in 2010, so we lost everything with the, the 2008 rape of, of, the, of the middle class and the poor classes. So tell us, um, tell us about uh, Detroit, which I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was yeah. just like this is this can't be this can't be true, but it obviously is. 
and then the more well-known one, the, the the Lehman brother, the Lehman brother um, meltdown, and um, and and, and uh, the subprime loans and all that. Yes, yes. So the my chapter on Detroit is called "It Takes a Pillage," and I have one <laughs> sub <laughs> one subsection in there that's death by derivatives. So this seems like the sort of unsexy, you know, thing that why should we really care about this? But interest swap derivatives are one of the most important concepts that we can get. So what I was had just been talking about with the interest rate. So with homes, when you have a low interest rate, you are able to borrow huge amounts. And the way that they trick us, both as homeowners and as, as municipalities or, uh, or states or any kind of school systems within there, is that they have the same problem. If a variable rate is low and the fixed rate is high, you can't borrow the kind of money that you need based mm -hmm. on the fixed rate. And so you have to go for the variable rate as you're trying to get taxes passed in order to repay that. So what they offered, what the bankers offered to these municipalities like Detroit who needed to redo their water system is that they give them an interest rate derivative, interest swap derivative. So that means it's kind of like a bet where they say, okay, well, if the rate that your the variable rate goes down so that you actually have more money, then you know, you'll pay us that money in extra fees. But if it goes up, we'll pay that. So it's like they're making a bet and it seems perfectly reasonable. And they're the same bankers that you've been dealing with, you know, who have um, who are offering you this. And so that's what Detroit's mayor did. And then, I don't know if you remember the whole LIBOR scandal when mm -hmm. the bankers were found to be manipulating the LIBOR rate so that it was higher. And that seemed really odd to me because why would they be popping Dom Perignon because the interest rate is actually higher? You know, that means that, you know, that, that I, I just, it just didn't make sense to me. And so, or no, lower, I'm sorry, they manipulated it to show that it was lower. And that seemed like, well, you're getting less money. So that doesn't make sense. Later, what Detroit found out is that that triggered the fact that they then had to pay all of these fees to the bankers, but their loan wasn't based on LIBOR. It was based on the SIFMA, the securities and something or finance uh, market uh, association. And so the SIFMA had not gone down. So they ended up not only having to pay the same thing they were before, but they also had to pay all of these extra fees. And that's what put them into what ended up being bankruptcy. But their bankruptcy wasn't something they came to. You know, they they talk about having... Uh, city officials in exile because they were all displaced and instead they had uh, a, a, a bankruptcy manager, mm -hmm. someone who was getting huge amounts. And what, what he did was first pay off all the bankers, give things like, the, like their uh, uh, casino earnings, you know, pledge those and, and take, and just gut it, take the art, the museums and sell them off for pennies on the dollar. And then he declared bankruptcy because what that meant is they no longer had to pay pensions. They didn't have to pay government pensions. And so that gave them the best of both worlds. And the reason that this is so critical is because every Every state, every municipality, every school system has the same thing because you had to. You had to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's how the bankers have ended up 
not just getting the money, which doesn't matter as much to them because they're creating the money after all. It's the assets. The asset grab is what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I call I call it attack of the petrodactyls because I mm-hmm. represent all this petrodollar wealth as these little pterodactyls that are swooping down on mm-hmm. anything that still has a drop of blood in it and lifting that off. Yeah, yeah, just like the uh, IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, they 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 uh, create uh, they they do crooked studies that give pie in the sky projections for projects, a lot of corruption along the way, knowing they'll never be able to be paid back. Right. Of course, the IMF and the World Bank are just another Federal Reserve. They're private bankers, robber mm-hmm. barons, and right. they're just waiting for Nigeria, or they're just waiting for Serbia, or they're just waiting for Colombia you know, to go into default so that then they can just swoop in, like you said, and buy up all, you know, national forests and public property and public companies and uh, uh, in anything, any, any, any assets that they can, that, that they can strip out of the country. It's the, it's the, yes. it's the same Dharma. It's the same darn model. Yeah. You want and to, Haiti is probably the yeah, prime right, example yeah. of that. Yes. Yeah. Going back 150 years, multi generational debt. Yeah, tell us about 2008. Uh, yes, yes. So uh, in in that book or that chapter, I think it's called "Finance is an Extractive Industry." And what one of the books that I quote in there is by Laura Gottesdiener, uh, and she wrote "A Dream Foreclosed." And she looks at Black America and how the idea that you could own a home has been taken from us. So what again, they talk about these as subprime mortgages, as if people were foolish and they went in for these uh, loans that they knew that they couldn't afford, that weren't prudent. But what they were was manipulated because once again, if you're bidding against someone else. And that's how houses are priced. Houses are priced with as much debt as the market can bear. As Mm -hmm. anyone who wants that house, we bid against each other. So if you make more, all that means if there's, you know, more money in the economy, it just means that there's more debt and that housing is more expensive. So whether, you know, I have two uh, homes my childhood home in Cumberland, Maryland, in Appalachia, which is a very impoverished area, and here in Santa Cruz, which has one of the highest housing costs in the world. But they're both essentially the same. People are working three jobs in order to pay them because Mm -hmm. there, there just isn't the money in circulation. And here, money circulates too fast. So so in, in both of those cases, you ended up having people who were tricked sometimes by their pastors, that there were bribes to get people to sign on to loans, even when they could have qualified for better ones. And after the banks did this, then they pulled the rug out, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what they're doing right now with raising the interest rate. Now, I say that the word inflation should really be dilution because that's what we're really talking about. People think that it's great that their house is worth more. And what I tell them, no, your money is worth less because it buys less Mm -hmm. in housing. And that means that all the goods and services that are local have to raise to that same level. So all they've done is leach the value out of that. So that's, yes, and you are in good company with having been caught in that because, yeah, I know many people who ended up losing their homes Mm -hmm. um, during that time, and all they're doing is ramping up that cycle again for now. Yeah. Yes. You write with passion and persuasion that we should, quote, go local end of quote, by having units of government much smaller than the states in the U.S. or countries in Europe, 
uh, give us an overview of how this can be structured. For me, I, I think the biggest concern is how to keep those trillionaire dictators from absorbing these small governments because they truly are genocidal vampire squids. So, <laughs> how, 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 how do we how, how do how do you keep them out of of your of your, of your small governments? Right. So I think it is much easier for a vampire squid to take down a large government because all you have to do is pick off the people at the top, bribe the people at the top, mm -hmm. and they have the power to surrender it all and then to enforce. They have the military and the police to then enforce whatever they've agreed to and make it seem as if it's coming from within. Mm -hmm. So the person I'd like to look to here is again, Johan Galtung, because as in peace and conflict studies, he was asked to negotiate with Afghanistan. And he said that the first thing that he does is look at what's another country that has the most similarity to it. And what he came up with was Switzerland, because both of them, the reason that Afghanistan is called the graveyard of empires is because it is a mire. It is quicksand that the empire you go in to conquer you conquer this little group but over here they're not thinking they're very conquered so then you have to go over there and then these people start revolting again and so switzerland is uh eight million people that is divided into 26 cantons and so those cantons are around let's see uh people each but then again, each of those is divided into 200 more communities that end up at a size of about 1,600 people. And the decisions that matter are really made at that 1,600 people, except for them having military neutrality and federalism. So that so it actually is more of a protection against being taken over by not having that enforcement mechanism and having, you know, that I say, if you're going to concentrate power at that level, you might as well tie it up with a red ribbon and hand it to the first totalitarian government that comes along because somebody's mm -hmm. going to do it, you know, and you're not going to have anything to say about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe you can start something in Santa Cruz at the local level. <laughs> <laughs> Got to start somewhere, don't we? Unbelievable. Well, yeah. So, so I, I think you need to go even more local than that, and I'll explain why I how what I mean by that. Because if like I have one of my episodes on uh, something called the Greater Reset, which is that idea of we should just go ahead and do the things that we think would be right. But knowing what I've just explained about the fact that the bankers own all the houses for free and we need to work for them, in order to make that happen, you'd have to have an uber wealthy person who buys up an entire neighborhood from the bankers in cash and then says, OK, I'm going to let you live here and I'm all you have to do is like do this work for each other and I'm going to create the credit for that. And if you need to cash that credit that I'm giving you out for dollars, I'll reimburse that too. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's just not possible until you take away the power of, as Ellen says, of creating money out of nothing from the bankers there they will always own your labor mm -hmm. and so there's nothing you can do to change it so where i say it needs to start is that you need to start in your head that you need to use this time to start imagining what would i do if i was looking to create policies and i was looking at how can this work for you know everybody um, how can we take responsibility and not take responsibility for others? How can we give people responsibility for themselves at the mm -hmm. smallest possible unit? And that's where I think we need to be thinking like adults, 
rather than saying that there's only a handful of adults in the country and we're the rest of us are children that we're thinking oh well i don't know whether this works for me you know that's whining that's how a kid thinks you need to be thinking about how what's a fair way for this to work that is then replicable and that means giving people responsibility at the level of family neighborhoods communities mm-hmm. yeah you talk you talked a lot about and you tied this back to the slavery, the the, the slavery uh, economic model that by giving your giving your labor, you know, for having a place to live is is not much is not much different than being a slave, and I guess that's where we get the the, the term wage slaves. So um, right, all, although yeah. I I think of that more as being servants because slaves don't have other slaves. And right now, we in the U.S. are able to get the products of other people's labor, which is what money is that legal fiction of, without giving them any of our own labor in return. And that's the paradigm that I think is coming to an end quick. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I lived in China. For, uh, well, my wife and I lived in China for for sixteen years, and to, um, it's to play as as far as like going local. I, I, I kind of want to look look at the forest from the trees, and to play the devil's advocate, China has done very well for itself and its people by having a strong central government, state planning. And a big chunk, and a big chunk of the economy being people-owned under state-owned enterprises. This actually goes back millennia, which is something I've written about in my in my books. Reading your book, it seems that China is like looking through the other end of a telescope, where you know, bigger is better. Communism, socialism realizes the dreams of their ninety-nine percent, and in spite of all the West's big lie propaganda machine brainwash. The Chinese people really like their system and way of life. So, how do you how, how do you see it the the you know the square peg and a round hole as far as you know a success story like China? Mm-hmm. And and I believe that you really have n- I have no business criticizing anyone else's form of government. Mm-hmm. You know that that to me my focus is really on the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, I, I noticed that uh, I was just listening to Matt's article on Robert Malone spreading anti-China yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Inform- disinformation. And I know that you were involved with that too. And I've done a couple of episodes on who is Robert Malone really and, uh, and another one on cons- conspiracy researchers and Robert Malone. But I had been a big fan of his back in October when he published that Claire Lopez article that and what and I, oh. I even pasted I, I found my comments at the time. And what I said is, I'm sorry, Robert, but this reads like pure propaganda. Mm-hmm. So so there is one uh, form of that that is that is definitely spreading uh, a, a form of, uh, of of hatred and distrust and uh, and that I think is just ramping up the military and provoking in a way that is that's really horrible. Yeah. yeah that, uh, you know, go ahead. You, know, you go on. I thought you stopped, but go ahead. Well, I was going to look more at the ideology that I think that the larger something is, the more ability it has to have internal colonies. So, for instance, myself coming from Appalachia, there are some excellent books about the rape of Appalachia, about Mm -hmm. how it wasn't just an impoverished area, it was one that was made impoverished Mm -hmm. in order to strip the resources. And, 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 and I don't, I don't know that about China. But what I, what I do know is that we in the US, you know, have a trade imbalance. So we're getting 
a lot of stuff <laughs> with, without the people who are making that stuff getting anything from us. And it seems to me logically that those people would be better off if they were producing for each other. Mm-hmm. And when I look at right now, the fact that China has been buying up those U.S. treasuries means that if there is this petro apocalypse, you know, that that of the petrodollar taking this dive and the that those are going to be kind of worthless except for one thing, which is buying up property in the mm-hmm. U.S. and assets yeah. in the U.S. And that is something that does make me um, think that my plan in which what we as small communities have is ownership of all of the land within mm-hmm. our borders and the infrastructure and the buildings and that we have the use of eminent domain to be able to buy those back so that no one can come in from the outside. Mm-hmm. That what I say is that our systems need to favor that people can work where they live and people can live where they work. Yeah. And so my system gives a two to one advantage of local consumers of, of things like housing so that if you have them priced in what I call carrots, that you can only have to pay twice as much in an imperial currency like dollars or euros in order to get that. Mm-hmm. And then I also give a two to one advantage on producers so that if you're mm-hmm. buying something from your neighbor, you have the ability to buy it for less because there's no taxes on it. And that if you're buying something from China, that it has perhaps a 50% tax so that you do have protectionist systems. But protectionism mm-hmm. has been made a dirty word, but you have protectionist systems that allow you to favor mm-hmm. buying things locally. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll have to see what happens. I think this is going to be a very, 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 very um, special year in terms of what happens on <laughs> on our on our on our pale blue dot because things are changing really fast since last, especially since last year with um, with with the Ukraine. Well, but going back to your thing, your your idea, how about founding a society, you know, uh, of its own? You know, there have there have been many. I even I even sent you a link of, of a, <laughs> a list of American utopian uh, communities. And there's still, there's been many, especially going back into the 19th century. And some are still active in the, in the USA and, and they are usually con- called, you know, utopian. Well, could that work? Yeah. I, I look at the limitations of that as you know what i was saying before is that it has to start with some super wealthy person Mm -hmm. who is also magnanimous and then you have to choose okay who do i save who do do i let in to my little Mm -hmm. utopia and who do i keep out so i think that the really fun thing that we could be doing right now and I imagine this as an online game is taking the our own localities because everyone's different. Like I said, Cumberland, money circulates too slow. Santa Cruz, it circulates too fast. You can't have one solution that fits all, mm-hmm. but you can have the same objectives. And so if each of us were to play this game where we say, okay, here are our tools with eminent domain, with tax taxation, with these carrots, with ownership of our own property. What are our problems and how do we make it, how do we develop a system where you win if money changes hands for services you have more local production within, mm-hmm. say, a year without that getting extracted out mm-hmm. for, you know, for some. So so you have an actual measure 
of what it means. And then you can give people extra points for stealing from somebody else or having somebody else steal your ideas <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that it promotes cooperation and 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 fostering ideas. And in the end, it's not really like anyone needs to agree because these are all separate communities and your solution may not be the same as mine, mm -hmm. but it would give us a way of imagining how things could be. Because mm -hmm. I think we are like that caged bird that has no idea what it would feel like to fly. We can't mm -hmm. even hope. And that's why I think people are sometimes negative to a point of getting angry about it is because they feel tricked if you make them hope. We have been so beaten down mm -hmm. that our expectations have, are so tiny. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, what are your current... I know you're doing, You're very active on Substack and you're very active on YouTube. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but do, are you writing another book? Or do you have any other journalistic pursuits that you're um that you're seeking well i am loving my substack community it uh it's a great platform for real conversations and i've i have said before that i would go to the ends of the earth for a real conversation and now i find that those are coming to me from mm -hmm. the ends of the earth uh there's another book so the the Dis How to Dismantle an Empire is the first in a series of a 2020 vision, the economics of community. And the next book would be How to Build a Commonwealth. And I think that would be a really fun book. So I've put some of those ideas into my YouTube channel and my Substack, but that would be the next thing that if we can get a community that wants to be talking about this, I would be so excited to be writing mm -hmm. that book. I think that book honestly would write itself if there were people who were who were there ready to read it. Well, you are well with with all that you're doing on YouTube and Substack, it would be a good foundation to write a book like that. So uh, you'd have some good material to work with. Thank you. And you might even be able to, you know. Uh, China Rising, my second book, was essentially a synthesis of, 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 of you know, maybe 50 columns that I had written. Huh. Uh, and um, so it's, it's, you know, and I, and I just read a book by uh, <coughs> Ramin uh, Mazahari about uh, Islamic socialism in Iran. And it's essentially, oh, it's essentially a, it's essentially his columns on press TV. Mm -hmm. uh, over a couple of years, so yeah. you save all that material, and you and you can probably you can probably work it in, you know, edit it into into a book. Yeah, and that's a great way to do it because before I started the book, I had a radio show called Third Paradigm, which is also at thirdparadigm.org, and it was on a pirate radio station that probably had more listeners globally than it did locally, but it. It gave me a way of getting response and having it be interactive and just that excitement of putting something mm -hmm. out there and uh, and finding out what people think. And when I stopped it in order to work on this book, and I did this book for the next eight years, but it's very lonely because essentially you're talking to yourself for mm -hmm. that amount of time. So I would love to have the next book develop organically the mm. way that you describe. Yeah, cool. Well, listen, everybody. Thank you, Teresa. This is the book. I am I am a I am a, a, a confirmed reader and buyer, and I really recommend you get this. Is it available in ebook? It is on no, it is only it is, available it is, it is, it is, in hard copy from Amazon. Yeah, well I got it's I listen, I got it for 20 euros. Uh, including postage, you know, and uh, so it's not it's not that expensive. And what I always tell people is, you don't have the money to buy the book, then go to your local library and ask them to buy it. Mm -hmm. Go to your local. How about your place of worship? How about your uh, a local college? Your your children's uh, 
you know, high school or your child or your or, or, or the, the university. There's a hundred book clubs, you know, book mm-hmm. circles. There's a, there's all kinds of ways to, to get books like this without paying like I did. <laughs> <laughs> so, but the easiest is to go to your, go to your county library. They love people to come and recommend books. They love it. Mm. So I, I um, have a personal thing where I just feel like we should be unplugging once in a while and reading a real book. And as you said, and others have said, it is dense. I hope it you know, it, it, it is also very readable, but it packs so much information mm-hmm. and is written where it has definitions of words, because mm-hmm. I feel like that's a really critical yeah, thing. You, you have a glossary at the end of each chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that glossary is not your usual glossary. It's saying these words have been stolen from us or they've been defined in a way that isn't really what they mean. Mm-hmm. So, so having this be something that creates discussion uh, and I have those questions at the end of each chapter, that would be my dream is having this be a text for people to say, okay, how did we get here? And what are the tools that the master has used to build the house so that we can use those same tools to dismantle it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, I'm going to give you a a humble, a humble Buddhist bow after being in, in China for 16 years, or Confu- or Confucian, or Taoist. They're all the same. They're all the same. I will get this Thank up. Uh, I will have all these links, uh, how to contact uh, Teresa and uh, her websites and everything. And thank you so much for being on. We do stay in touch by email. Maybe someday we can meet each other. Hope it happens. Thank you yes. again, and um, uh, keep keep on keep on keep on with the good fight. We will be victorious. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. This was Bye-bye. a delight. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye.